A small-time journalist witnesses a murder in the apartment across from hers, but after calling the cops and investigating, no sign of a crime is to be found. Unsatisfied, the journalist pursues her own investigation and uncovers an intricate web of conspiracy, murder, conjoined twins, and multiple personalities in this early erotic thriller from Brian De Palma, 1972's Sisters. I'm Connor Izagari. I'm Caleb Bouger. This is Filmgasm. Happy Wednesday. Welcome to the Filmgasm podcast. If you've been listening for the past month, then you know all about the cycle, where each of the members of the team picks one movie per cycle of five, with the fifth being left up to the book of Filmgasm, our endless list of random potential episodes. Love how we're doing this. This has been so much fun. Uh, I've been getting exposed to so many movies I never even would have thought about. So this, is, this has been a cool idea. Um, today's pick Brian De Palma's Sisters was chosen by Oscar Sunday host Austin Johnson, and it's a film I know he's been wanting me to see for quite some time now. So there you go, Austin. I saw Sisters, <laughs> and it was good. Before we get into all that, I do have one quick update on the rewind. This bit of news updates our 55th episode on the 80s comedy classic The Great Outdoors, which we did as a bonus episode for the Blair Witch Project back when we were still doing Friday bonuses. And there was a weird transition period where we stopped calling them bonuses and just gave them an official episode title. So there's a whole bunch of random Friday episodes from about 2020, like early to mid 2020. And yeah, our our whole canon's all fucked up. But you know what? It's all just more shit for you to listen to. So (laughs) It's like Halloween, just choose your own adventure. Yeah. You want Exactly. We've got multiple timelines. You can listen to our official canon. You can listen to our Curse of Thorn timeline. We got whatever. It's Cult of Thorn, whatever the fuck it was called. <laughs> you can listen to the, the right trash for Rob Zombie era. That hasn't happened yet, but we're. I have a feeling it's coming. <laughs> it's coming soon. I think it's about time. <laughs> for sure. I Those Friday episodes were a great idea in theory, but looking back, they were mismanaged and they were a massive pain in the ass because we didn't have a script. We just went in blind. There were like 20 to 30 episodes or minutes of pop, just not our best work. Uh, but you know, they were, the way I see it, the bonus episodes evolved into the sneak preview in Oscar Sunday. So, you know, everything happens for a reason. Um, and eventually the upcoming show. Yes, which we're going to be announcing next month. <laughs> yes, but as of now, we're still not telling y'all shit, except for these hands. But if you have been paying attention to how we've been talking about this mystery show, you should know by now what this is going to be about. <laughs> yeah, can't wait. I'm, I think I am, I'm, I'm very excited about that. I have a feeling it's going to be the most fun one we do. And uh, yeah, looking forward to that. Uh, so this update came out of fucking nowhere. No one's talked about the great outdoors for like 30 years, but apparently Dan Aykroyd has not stopped thinking about it. He is reteaming with great outdoors director, Howard Deutsch for a sequel. That's going to bring back Aykroyd's character, Roman Craig. Have you seen the great outdoors? Oh yeah. That's been one on my radar. I haven't made watched it It's really funny. It's really funny. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the great outdoors is a late eighties comedy starring Dan Aykroyd and John Candy as uh 
well, I guess, how do you describe that relationship? Dan Aykroyd is his brother-in-law. Uh, John Candy and his family are going on a lake, lake vacation for a weekend. They're looking forward to getting away from it all. And John Candy's arrogant stockbroker uh, brother-in-law, Roman, shows up uninvited with his family as like a, aren't you glad we're here, like vacation surprise. <laughs> and of course, heads are butted and there's a big bear and like, it's a great movie. It's really fun. I think John Hughes wrote it. Well, anyway, Aykroyd wants to do it again. And this is what he said about the potential sequel. Quote, Howie Deutsch was a really fun director on the picture. He loved handling Candy and me. Howie and I are working on the sequel called The Great Outlaws. I'm looking for the Candy figure. There are some really interesting names, but I can't say who. Howie and I are tickled to bring back Roman as a Ponzi scheme guy who victimizes a federal agent. Who knows if I find the right partner? <laughs> Look, Dan Aykroyd has always been hilarious. Uh, I just don't, I don't think this is a great idea. <laughs> no, it. What I understand is that the movie works because of him and John Candy. Yes, not just him. So it just feels weird to try to do this again when John Candy's been dead for a while. And it's like. You know, and the fact that he even says like we're looking for that hole, that that candy hole is like you're not going to find it, you're not going to fill it up. No one's going to replace Sean Candy anytime soon. Yeah, and also like we've seen what belated sequels, especially belated comedy sequels, look like, and it is rarely a good effort. Like most of the time, it falls flat and is never talked about again. So, take this with a grain of salt. I mean. It took Dan Aykroyd 30 years to get Ghostbusters 3 off the ground. And, you know, that's happening next week. And even then, it's completely different from what he'd envisioned. So I don't really count that. But, you know, we'll see. I, this might never, this, I, I would bet money this probably never actually happens. I wouldn't be surprised. I don't think he was, as funny as I've heard the original, I don't think he was clamoring for a second one. The Great Outdoors is a misunderstood 80s classic. It is in my uh, my Voodoo account if you want to just check that out sometime. It's really, really funny. You won't be disappointed. I'm going to need to check that out definitely one day. The scene where John Candy eats an, the old 96er is one of my favorite scenes he's ever done. It's a 96-ounce steak that he eats as like part of a food challenge. <laughs> and it is so great because the whole time he's like, you know, he's, he almost can't do it. Dan Aykroyd's like checking his like digestion with his head to his stomach. He's like, all right, it's processing nicely. You're good. You can keep going. <laughs> it's, it's great. <laughs> I might watch that tonight just for kicks. I love that movie. So that's our update. The rewind. You know, sometimes you get a weird one like this. <laughs> uh, so sisters. Uh, was this your first time with, with this film? Yes, this is my first time watching this film. I actually... Never heard about this diploma film until it was brought up on the podcast. I'd heard about it after Austin watched it because every time he watches a movie that he adores, he immediately tells me, and then I watch it. And then I usually am not as enamored. But in this case, this was pretty good. Um, so, yeah, Brian De Palma is a filmmaker I'm fairly familiar with. I hadn't heard of this one. Um, the cast is pretty decent. Uh, it is a Criterion film, which is how Austin discovered it. Uh, 
And I always like when horror films make it into the Criterion Collection because it gives them kind of like a, a status. And I like that. Yeah. It, I mean, yeah, it does. I got actually on at least two Criterion movies now. Or Night of the Living Dead and um, Silence of the Lambs. But yeah, it's interesting because, you know, De Palma, I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with his work. You know, I've seen a lot, a lot of the really big films of his. I know, like Carrie. Um, but I think what I have always been meaning to get into, and I always hear about from horror sites, is when he went to like this erotic thriller, murder mystery era of his career, which Sisters very much fits firmly in that era. I believe it came out during that time frame of his work. And that's the one I've been really trying to see because I hear a lot about those films from him all the time. And like his, like everything from his direction to the technique and his style in those films is what people are always talking about. And after seeing Sisters, I can see why big time. It made me very interested, interested in finally seeing even the bigger name stuff of this era of his filmmaking that I've heard about for so long. Yeah, totally, man. Brian De Palma is one of those guys, one of those, you know, early 70s directors who emerged post Hayes Code as one of the experiment experimenters who really just started doing, you know, his own thing with a flavor of the past. And that's cool. You know, him and Carpenter and Romero, like these guys kind of started changing the game in the seventies. And uh, yeah, it's cool. You got to see where the, you know, where these guys came from. It's always great to watch the, the hits, you know, Carrie, Scarface, the untouchables, but, to understand these guys, you've got to see the early stuff to just to see like how these guys developed. Uh, and yeah, Sisters is definitely, you can see a director who is going to go places. Yeah, he has, he has a style and he, he commits to it so, so well and knows how to entrance you in it. And he uses a lot of techniques. I like, it's kind of funny. If you go to film school, you always hear like, you, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't, you shouldn't film split screen. You shouldn't do zooms and blah, 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 blah. At least on the technical side, like my 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 film school said that a lot, but he does it and he does it so well. It's like you know how to do it and you know what you're doing and you have a point to say with it. It works fucking so so well, and the problem proves that like big time with this, with uh with this movie at least that I've seen. I love that film school, or at least in your experience, tells you what not to do. And here's a blatant example of a director doing that and pulling it off. Like that sounds straight up like suppression of imagination to me. It, I, I can't speak on behalf of all film schools, but I know full so I remember that, that you shouldn't do zoom shots. They look cheap and Bob on don't use them. And then like maybe not like a couple months later, I think like one of Tarantino's movies came out. It may have been Django. I think I forget which one came out with his while I was in college. It may have been Django. And um sure enough. He did zooms in that movie for a reason. It wasn't just to do it. It was for a fucking reason and it worked fine and no one gave a shit. <laughs> I think, was it Tarantino who said, like, I didn't go to film school. I went to films. Yeah. Yeah. What's funny, too, is that film school suck his dick. <laughs> and times, yeah. I had to hear about Tarantino and film school. I'm like, you guys know what he thinks of film schools, right? Like, you're fully aware of what he thinks of film schools, right? <laughs> <laughs> bunch of fucking simps all of them uh that's great so let's talk about the origins of this thing uh a weird ass movie like this doesn't just fall from the sky this comes from somewhere um 
Brian De Palma was inspired to write Sisters after he read an article in Life magazine in the 60s about the lives of Soviet conjoined twins Masha and Dasha Kriva Shilapova. It's fucking crazy. K-R-I-V-O-S-H-L-Y-A-P-O-V-A. Come on, man. I was like, just stop trying to say it because it just makes us look bad when we butcher it like this. I can't immediately pronounce Soviet Union conjoined twin sister names. My apologies. <laughs> well, in this, all right. So in this article, there's a picture of these conjoined twins and one of them looks happy and carefree and the other looks upset and disturbed. So that image inspired De Palma to come up with this, this idea of sisters. It's pretty cool. I love finding where ideas come from. You know, what inspires people to have that light bulb go off and think, I could do something like that. That's, those are always the coolest stories, no matter how small or big the idea comes. My favorite one to date is when Stephen King's car broke down and he had to walk like to a gas station in the middle of the night. He walked over a bridge and just casually looked over and thought, huh, I wonder if something's down there. And that's how it came about. (laughs) It takes literally that little amount of time, just like, huh. And all of a sudden you've got a 900 page book. One second thought, spawn an over thousand page novel with a weird turn of a child already seeing that he keeps defending, which is the one thing that creeps me out. Yeah, it's hard to, I don't really want to know where the idea for that came from. Uh, <laughs> there's no good answer to that question. But he didn't defend it so much, but it is weird now to constantly be saying, like, no, that needs to be there. No, as we've seen in the 90s miniseries and the mo- the two-part adaptation from a couple years ago, it doesn't. <laughs> the story works perfectly fine without a bunch of 12-year-olds fucking each other in the sewer. Which is a sentence I shouldn't have to tell anybody. <laughs> oh, boy. Anyway, especially sister. A, especially a baby brain like yourself. Oh, my God. No, do not compare. Do not combine those two things do not throw me into the into the child orgy which is another sentence i never thought i'd have to say again uh okay baby ring so brian de palma saw a picture of some russian conjoined twins one looked happy one looked sad and he was like huh all right throw lois lane in there you got a movie uh so there was also a great deal of influence from films like uh psycho and rosemary's baby Films that Brian De Palma considered, you know, his favorites, considered, you know, game changers. And he took homages from those and poured them into this. And that's very apparent at times. The whole dream sequence towards the end, straight out of Rosemary's Baby. Wait, you're telling me that back in the 70s that Hollywood still didn't have original ideals? Hollywood Mm -hmm. had original ideas for about 10 years in the 1920s. After that... Everything else was built on that foundation. I, I just have to point that out, especially after that whole conversation we had about that one guy I told you about. Ugh. Like, those people are like, they don't make anything original in Hollywood anymore. And I'm like, well, look at this movie. Yes, it's absolutely original in its own way. But like you're saying, he took homage from prior films. And films that were probably, I think I want to say, Rosemary's Baby, I want to say 
we'll say about around a decade old at that time. I know Psycho's more because it came out in 1960. At the time, no, uh, Rosemary's Baby was only like four years old. Okay, four years old. So yeah, like movies that were like a decade or below that old, and yep. using homages to them to make this movie. So that's why I say like, no, they're Hollywood's been out of ideals. It's just how do you make something that's already there fresh and new and make it exciting to watch, which De Palma definitely did here. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with, you know, throwing a little nod to your to your heroes, your icons, the, the filmmakers you respect, the films you respect. There's nothing wrong with doing that. I mean, if, you know, De Palma had straight up just, you know, remade Psycho and called it Sisters, then we would have a problem. But he didn't. You know, Sisters is a a different idea that has pieces of, you know, Psycho and Rosemary's Baby. I think every film of the 20th century after like, you know, the 20s and 30s is kind of, it's kind of Frankenstein. It's all stitched together with bits and pieces of other movies to make something new. And that's just the way it works. You know, there's only so many original ideas out there. Everything else is going to be built on those original ideas. That's just how storytelling works. Yeah, and it's going to be like that until either we die out as a human species, legend players, or something. It's the only way it's going to end is when we're not here anymore. Like that's that's the only way it's going to end. Yeah, until, until, human, until humans just don't fucking know how to tell stories anymore. This is this is the way it's, it's going to work. I am okay with that. Yeah, I like you know, I like stories, good stories. Even some bad stories, but I like stories. Uh, so Brian De Palma is most well known for directing Carrie and Scarface. Those are kind of his two big career films, and both are fucking lights out. If you've never seen Carrie or Scarface, turn this off. Go watch Carrie or Scarface. Come back here and listen to us talk about how much we love Carrie and Scarface. There, yeah, Carrie, I did on this show back in the early days by myself. It's about 19, 20 minutes long, so weird it's weird if you're not like a straight up you know amazing comedian doing a podcast by yourself is fucking weird and i realize that now <laughs> yeah yeah it's kind of funny to listen to those old episodes because it's like you you're clearly trying to rush through it because you're just like this is weird by myself well i was nervous you know i was when i get nervous i talk fast and i talk you know i stumble over my words and it was early days. I didn't really know what I was doing yet. So there's like 15 or so episodes where I'm just rambling to the wall about Carrie and the Hitcher and fucking Suspiria. And it's just, it's just not great content. And I, I, you know, but it all has to start somewhere, you know. And thankfully, you know, Austin came on board full time and we 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 solved that problem. But Carrie is one that is itching for a redo because I would love to dig into this proper. And Scarface, of course, would be a fun as hell episode as well. That's a great movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's... I love both those movies. Um, not a big fan of the fucking Carrie remake. That was absolute dog shit to sit through. Have not bothered yet. No, I sat through it. <laughs> but... The original was great and uh, is one of the earliest examples of the uh, the end jump scare. It's like the first time they've ever done that. Movie. It was their first time, one of the earliest examples of doing that. 
So thank you to Palma for giving us one of the most now overused tropes in horror movies. At the time, fresh and original. Yeah, it's become like it's to the point where I, you know, I'm, I wait for it. If it doesn't happen, it doesn't feel complete. <laughs> and see, I'm at the point where if they do it, I'm like, fuck you for doing that. Because it's usually just like a cheap point. And usually when I've seen it in the movie, I'm really enjoying that's nearly flawless. And they do that and I go, fuck you. Sinister did that. I love Sinister, but I hate that they do that at the end. I'm like, this was so unnecessary. They did a great film on end. Why did you do this? I'm afraid did the same thing where they break the the screen horror for a minute to like in there where she closes the laptop and it's like the ghost right there and jumps from the camera. I'm like, you had me with this movie. I was actually kind of into it. And then you just had to do that ending, didn't you? Unfriended was a good one. I haven't seen that in a long time. I liked it. I have seen the sequel recently. It was actually pretty good. Yeah, I, I went and saw that. They were both good. Uh, yeah, we should. We have not done a lot of. Fa- do, you, do you consider those found footage? Uh, no, there's a name for it. I have to look back again, but they have come with a name for it because it's become so prevalent now to do horror films like that. I'm going to look up what that's called. I'm curious. They have a legit name for it. It's finally been dubbed its own subgenre. It has enough cred now. Um, computer screen supernatural horror film. That doesn't sound right. No, there's something I remember hearing going, oh, okay. All right. What subgenre? Let's try host. Is host. Screen life. Okay. That, That sounds about right. That's what I've heard. I don't like that either. All right. My point was we have not done a lot of found footage on the, on the podcast. We did like the Blair Witch Project and I think that's it. So you did, maybe we should... so below. Hmm? You did it as above, so below also. Oh yeah, that was found footage. That was a cool movie. Um, yeah, we should do more. I do like, I like found footage for the most part when, you know, you get directors that care. When you get those ones that just do the cheap cash card, I'm just like, oh. Yeah, like I'd love to do record or like uh, even the remake quarantine was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, VHS. there's like hmm? the first, like the first VHS. Yeah, first first couple VHSs would be fun. Um, creep. Ooh, I don't mean to see that anyway. So yeah, that was an odd movie. I'd like to dissect that one. Yeah, I heard they made a sequel, Creep Two. They did. Uh. Well, other than his big ones, um, De Palma also directed The Untouchables, Mission Impossible, Dressed to Kill, Carlito's Way, Raising Cain, Snake Eyes, and The Black Dahlia, among other films. He hasn't done anything really substantial in quite a bit. Uh, The Black Dahlia was a huge bomb, and I think it really uh, crippled him. So after that, yeah, he's done like some, he's got some projects lined up, but everything he's done in the past 10 years. 15 years is stuff I've never heard of that didn't really get a lot of attention, which is kind of a shame considering how big he was in the seventies and eighties. Yeah. It's weird. You know, it's, he was, he's a, you know, such a well-respected, well-known director that it's weird that like you have other ones like Spielberg still doing stuff. And Scorsese's still doing stuff. Tarantino's well, even Tarantino's he's still making movies. You know, he keeps saying he's going to retire soon, but it's just weird that like De Palma, we haven't seen a peep from him in what feels like two, three decades now. Yeah, it's weird. 
I think the, the last like huge thing he he did was probably Mission Impossible. Uh, yeah, it's weird he didn't keep going. It's not like that franchise died after the first movie. It's still going strong. Yeah, for the first few, they kept like experimenting with different directors. You know, they had De Palma, then John Woo, then J.J. Abrams, and then it's just been uh, what's his name, McCurry. Tom Cruise's guy, Macquarie. Yeah, it's been him ever since because apparently he's the only director Tom Cruise wants to work with anymore. Apparently, because Brad Bird did the fourth movie. Yeah, he did. And then I think it's Steven. I think his first name is Steven, I believe. I might be wrong, but I think it's Christopher. Is it Christopher? Yeah, Christopher McQuarrie. I think that's yeah. Yeah, he's I know he's been doing it since like the fifth film onwards. Yeah. I mean, he is good, like they are the best of the franchise. So maybe, you know, this is the guy who should stay on. But I don't know, just be cool if De Palma got another one. Um Margot Kidder plays Danielle Breton, former conjoined twin. Kidder is best known for playing Lois Lane in the original four Superman movies alongside Christopher Reeve. She was also in Black Christmas, the Amityville Horror, and 2009's Halloween 2. She committed suicide in 2018 at 69 years old by overdosing on drugs and alcohol. She always had uh, struggles with mental illness, and they finally uh, claimed her life. Margot Kidder, probably the most iconic Lois Lane on film, uh, alongside, you know, the most iconic Superman. I've seen the first two Superman movies. They're fucking awesome. I have not yet sat through three and four because I've heard they are just bottom of the barrel, worst superhero movies of all time. So holding off on that one. <laughs> yeah, I haven't haven't bothered with those yet, with those first, the uh, last two yet. I have seen the first one, first one in the first two there we go jesus my words are not helping today but i was in the first two and i remember really 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 liking them and i thought she was really good and i do i actually have enjoyed her her horror output i think she's one of the bright spots in black christmas and not that in a negative way as in like i think black christmas sucks i love the original movie but she does stand out to me in that movie um, especially when she tells the cop what road the house is on and she basically spells out fellatio and the cop just goes okay <laughs> Oh. Yeah, Black Christmas is such a yeah. The first time I watched that movie, it didn't really affect me that much. The second time I watched it, something about it creeped me the fuck out, and I don't remember, I don't really know what it was, but I I'm a, I'm oh, in the can, yeah I'm in the camp pinpoint, now. Okay, well so I can pinpoint that shit. It's the fucking phone calls. They I'm a grown adult. Those phone calls creep me the fuck out. <laughs> oh yeah, they're so expertly done, but. Yeah, I like her in that. I do. I remembered her, and it's actually I forgot to mention that she was in Rob Zombie's uh, Halloween, Halloween Two, I believe. She played a uh, Scott Taylor Compton's a uh, psychiatrist that she had to see therapist. Yeah, and, and I think and, her last name was Collier as a as a reference to this movie. Grace's last name. Oh, okay. Yeah, that wouldn't make sense. No one's zombie. I remember she was really, really good in that. Uh, I remember when I did so, I was like, oh my God, it's Pongo Kidder. Like, I had a little going on. I was like, hey. Um, so she was good in that. And Amityville Horror is like, I have the weirdest relationship with that one. It's like, I remember not really liking it when I first saw it. Then I watched it again. I was like, okay, it's not bad, but I really don't understand how this is such a classic and spawned a still going franchise. 
there's like 40 Amityville movies. It's fucking crazy. Um, I was at DVD exchange the other day and somebody had dropped off their entire Amityville collection on like limited edition Blu-ray. They had like Amityville. It's about time. Amityville dollhouse, like all the, all the shitty ones. And Amityville, I feel like is one of those movies you want to like so much. You, you want to be on board, but there's something about that movie that just is holding it back. And I don't know what it is. There's so many great moments. It's super creepy at times, but I feel like we're not getting the full story. You know, it ends right when it should be getting interesting. Uh, so yeah, I, Amityville was the second episode of this show. Again, I did it by myself and is definitely overdue for another go. Uh, Jennifer Salt plays Grace Collier, small-time journalist. She was in Midnight Cowboy, Play It Again, Sam, and a lot of TV. These days, uh, she's a big TV producer, having uh, executive produced such hit shows as Nip Tuck, Ratched, and American Horror Story. So, yeah, she's one of the big producers on American Horror Story. Well, say, so, hey, do you love me some American Horror Story? I did not know that. Yeah, pretty cool. I think she's great in this. Uh, Jennifer Salt, you know, it's, it's good to have a, a rational mind in such a crazy-ass situation. And I love how she's constantly arguing with anybody who tells her she's full of shit. She's like, no, no, I saw it. Like, I know what I saw, especially with the cops when they're, they're like, yeah, sure, because they're pissed that she wrote up an expose about police brutality. What great officers. <laughs> and uh, they're just, like, trying to leave. And she's like, no, like, you know, you're not a like you're not a decent officer if you don't deal with this. Like you're an asshole. I love that she's she does that. <laughs> and then you know her and her the way she ends up in this movie so fucking heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah, she. Oh my god! When they got to the end, I was like, I mean, we'll talk about one. I remember the end going, Jesus Christ! It's not stopping for her. <laughs> no, this is like she's broken forever. Like a part of her has been erased. It's, yeah, it's oh, and it's it's funny because like you're you know it's, I think it's interesting you know people with us calling out diversity nowadays in film and having strong female characters. It's almost amazing how De Palma wrote a, to me a very strong female character here, or whoever I don't think he wrote the movie. I think someone else wrote this movie. He co-wrote the movie. He co-wrote the movie. Okay, but you know they wrote a really strong female character that does very much take charge. It's like no fuck you to the cops. You guys. Don't want to investigate because of some piece of her that speaks the truth. But I'm saying, and it is weird to me that she wrote some big article that pissed off the NYPD. Or is it New York? I think, I think so. Was it New York or San Francisco? I'm looking it up. All right. God. Me too. All that. What Let's happens when I get way too tired? I... Do, 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 do. Um, it is. It is Manhattan. It's Manhattan. Okay, so the okay. NYPD. Like she writes this this article that's so big that it pisses off the NYPD, but she's also like small time local paper still. So I'm wondering, like, where does she? Where is she on like the journalist totem pole here? Is she so, like she's so small that she's upset with her career, but she's so big that she pisses off the cops? <laughs> I I don't know. That was a little weird to me. 
but you know, I digress. Um, William Finley plays Dr. Emile Breton, creepy doctor. Finley was in Phantom of the Paradise, Silent Rage, Night Terrors, and The Black Dahlia. He died in 2012 at 71 years old from surgery complications. And he looks like John Waters with an even creepier mustache. <laughs> I mean, this guy looks like every stalker in every woman's nightmares. And he acts like it too. I'm never like he's her doctor and her husband. Or was the husband thing made up? It's not super clear. I'm thinking doctor, and I think he was in love with that sister. I don't know if they were necessarily married, but he was most definitely in love with her. Did he kill Dominique on purpose? I, I think, think he did. So. Yeah. I think so. Unnecessary surgery. The hallmark of any successful doctor. Um, Oscar nominee Charles Durning plays Joseph Larch, private investigator. Durning was nominated for his performances in 1982's The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas and 1983's To Be or Not to Be. He was also in Dog Day Afternoon, The Muppet Movie, Spy Hard, The Hudsucker Proxy, Dick Tracy, and Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? He died in 2012 at 89 years old from natural causes, and he is one of my all-time favorite character actors. I love Charles Durning. And I was so excited to see a young Charles Durning as a PI. That was really neat. Yeah, yeah, he was uh, he, he was really cool. He, I, I don't recall him being in a lot of scenes in this movie, but what he was in, he makes it worth it. I love when he, he and Grace are trying to work out like their code for when he's going to break into uh, Danielle's apartment and she keeps arguing with him and he's like, look, do I tell you how to write magazines? <laughs> like, just leave this to me. I know what I'm doing. I went to a class in Brooklyn. Did you go to a class? I'm the PI around here, lady. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, yeah, Durning's the best. Um, have you ever seen the movie Spy Hard? No. A lot of people hate this movie. It's got like a seven or something on Rotten Tomatoes. I've, I have a soft spot for it because I love Leslie Nielsen. It's a parody of um, James Bond movies and like, you know, spy movies. Leslie Nielsen plays Agent Dick Steele. Uh, his uh, code his code number is WD forty, and um, it's really stupid. But Charles Durning plays like his boss. He plays M basically, and he's constantly hiding in like very elaborate ways in his office. Every time somebody comes in, they have to find the chief, and he's like in the chair or like behind a hidden wall or in the painting or something. And it's just it's goofy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Weird Al Yankovic did the theme song and he did it like a Bond theme with like opening credits that are elaborate and everything. It was, it's a funny movie. It's under underappreciated, I think. Maybe we can save it for the other show. <laughs> Maybe. I, I'll defend that one. Um, and then, of course, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? He's Papi O'Daniel, the, the governor of Mississippi, who's running for re-election against, you know, the KKK asshole. And... Every time he's on screen, he's always insulting somebody or whacking someone in the head. It's, it's great. He calls everyone some bitch. It's, it's hilarious. Oh, God, I love that. Some bitch. <laughs> uh, Liesl Wilson, or Lyle Wilson, however you say it, probably Lyle, uh, plays Philip Wood, Danielle's victim. 
Wilson was only in a few other films, including Mississippi Summer, Cotton Comes to Harlem, and The Incredible Melting Man, as well as a lot of TV bit parts. Um, he died in 2010 at 66 years old from a brain tumor. And uh, he had a very short-lived career. He didn't do a lot. And in this movie, they really lull you into a false sense of security with this guy. You think this is like our hero. But like Psycho... Dude gets killed off really early on, and the movie immediately shifts focus to another character. I thought that was really cool, really smart, and I didn't see it coming. Yeah, uh, I remember thinking, oh, okay, we're going to follow this guy. I actually maybe at first thought, like, okay, Margot Kidder's going to be here, we follow because she's like one of the biggest names we got for this. And it's like, oh no, okay, he's the main character. Okay, cool. And then, in one of the more horrific scenes, in my opinion, we watched him get murdered, and I was like, okay, who the fuck are we following in this movie then? Like, the neighbor. <laughs> yeah, it's it really keeps you guessing the whole time. So Sisters has an IMDb score of 6.9, Rotten Tomatoes score of 87%. It made about a million bucks on its $500,000 budget, mostly from video rentals. Uh, theatrically, this didn't really make a splash at all. Um, it was remastered by the Criterion Collection in 2018 and was remade in 2006. The remake was very poorly received. We'll talk more about that at the end. Uh, but first, let's discuss some bits we liked about Sisters. Um, first, right, right off the bat, the opening credits reminded me so much of The Brood. I haven't seen The Brood, so you got to elaborate on that one. Ah, okay. The music and the tone. very much, And the, the Brood came out uh, five, six years after. No, wait. Six, sorry, can't do math. 72, yeah, four, God, I'm blanking. <laughs> seven years, Jesus Christ, seven years. I majored in English in my undergrad, I'm majoring in history in my graduate. Math is not my strong suit, I apologize. This came out seven years, at, The Brood came out seven years after Sisters. And I, I'm pretty sure Cronenberg was homaging this film with his opening credits. Just the pace of the music, the urgency, the visuals, it's very similar. And considering how bu- big of a horror buff you are, the, the brood should 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 you should make that a priority. <laughs> I know, trust me. I'm I, there's a lot of Cronenberg I still need to watch. I've gotten better with Cronenberg as far as finding something like The Fly and Shifters and Rabbit, but there's in Videotrome, there's still a couple that have eluded me, like The Brood, uh, Scanners, probably a couple others. I'm not thinking of Dead Ringers. No one see. Scanners is incredibly overrated but coming from me that probably isn't going to mean much it, it means nothing to me because you didn't like Videodrome and I love Videodrome I didn't hate Videodrome I just didn't think it was that great so you didn't like it got it you hated it <laughs> I hated Scanners I was hoping for so much more from that and to be fair he made it without like basically without a script like they were writing it as they were filming it so oh, there's a lot of inconsistencies and it's a very dull movie for what it, for the subject matter so you say. I'm not alone in that camp. Look up some Letterboxd reviews. It's not just me. It's not just me. We're going by Letterboxd now, huh? We actually kind of are starting to overtake a lot of my movie score websites. That's kind of where I go to first at this point. Um, Dead Ringer is also not a horror movie, like at all. It's very much a, a drama. Yeah, but that, I think that, that was when he kind of started to 
step away from it. I would still argue from what I've heard about Dead Ringers. It's definitely horror adjacent still. Yeah, there's moments, but yeah. We did a we did when we were doing the bonus uh Friday things, we did Dead Ringers as our bonus for the brood last year. Mm, okay. <laughs> That was fun. What's not, oh, so many see Dead Zone all the way through. I've seen like bits and pieces of that movie, but not like beginning to end all the way through. Dead Zone is great. That's a that's an awesome book, awesome movie. Yeah, love the Dead Zone. Yeah, Cronenberg's great. We we we've done a few Cronenberg films on the show. Um, the split screen effect is really cool when da- or Danielle <sighs> snaps kills Philip and. The doctor comes in is like, what have you done? And starts cleaning it up. As on the other side of the screen, you see um, Grace calling the cops and waiting for the cops whose response time is fucking terrible for Manhattan. (laughs) They clearly did. They were just bitter and didn't want to bother with her. Um, But I love that you're seeing those two events unfold in real time. You're seeing them cleaning up the body and then Grace and the cops slowly making their way up to the apartment. That was really cool. It was so tense. You were just waiting for them to cross into each other. They almost do. It was, it was very well done. Mm. Yeah, I uh, and I'll give credit to Josh in this one because he pointed this out. It's very Hitch. It's very Hitchcock. Like you, this is where you can really see the Hitchcock influences and De Palma again. I don't know why my film score felt need to say not to use this technique, but because he uses it the way he does, and he's doing it for a purpose. And he knows what he's doing. The split screen helps build the suspense up and the tensioning gets you because you as audience member you're seeing both things happen you know he he is purposely showing you what he wants to show you throughout the entire movie and keeping certain things back he wants just like when the split screen ends because they get into the apartment finally and then like the camera goes down to the couch and you see the blood on the back couch you as audience see it, but they don't know about it. And then you're just sitting there going, oh, shit, when's someone going to see that? So, you know, he, with that split screen in particular, it's just a master of his craft, in my opinion, just knowing how to build that suspense up and letting you as audience see things a certain way so that you're on the edge of your seat. Yeah, he does that the whole time. Did you, did your heart break when she, when Grace dropped the cake? Yes. <laughs> Oh, I, I audibly went like, <coughs> no. <laughs> oh, and then like the cop tried to get her on like assaulting a police officer because he fucking she dropped a cake on his foot. Yeah. Oh, dude, if movies have taught me anything, apparently if you just touch a cop to get their attention, they can claim that as assault if they're in a pissy mood. If real life has taught me anything is that they don't need a fucking reason. They'll just arrest you. And then lay out a bunch of charges at like they will. The biggest, the weirdest one for me is resisting arrest as like being the only charge. Cause like, what, what were you being arrested for to resist? Exactly. So we're charging you with resisting arrest, arrest, but wait, what were you doing to have to be arrested? Yeah. It's a catch 22. It's stupid. Anyway. Yeah. She dropped the cake. And that was like the only evidence in this. I thought it was cool how they folded the guy into the couch. That was a that was an interesting way to hide a body. And apparently, um, Brian De Palma had to screen this for uh, producers, and they were like, 
at first when they read the script, they were hesitant that a, a full size human being would fit in a fold up couch. So he had it done like on as a full take specifically. So he could show the producers that yes, you can indeed fit a full grown man into a fold couch, fold up couch. I don't like how department knows that. He put a lot of thought into how real that needed to be. <laughs> they, they're just like, like, it's kind of like, okay, look, the problem, I, I don't think you can fit a full grown man in a couch. And you just gonna go, oh, trust me. You can. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was supposed to be like, wait, let's back up before we go any further with movie talk here. <laughs> I was like, I'd be like, wait, well, how, why, how do you know this? Why? Why are you an expert in this? What's going on here? Somewhere out there in a landfill is a old couch that used to be in Brian De Palma's apartment, and there is a skeleton in there. Oh, Frank, <laughs> just waiting to burst out because it's hot. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I would love that somebody just like I want somebody to Photoshop that into like just random couches in movies, just Danny DeVito climbing his way out. Uh, so I love the like, oh, ah, like this, the like aggressive screaming. <laughs> oh my god, great stuff. Um, but yeah, I think he clearly killed a man and put him in his couch at one point. Had to. The Palmer killed a man. He just won't fess up to it. <laughs> this is his confession. Like. Kubrick's, you know, confession for the moon landing was in The Shining. De Palma's confession for murder is in Sisters. You heard it here first, folks. Allegedly to protect us from any legal action. Allegedly. Just kidding. I don't think De Palma's actually murdered anyone in real life. Movies on screen... A lot yeah. of people die in his movies. Yeah. Just I mean, Carrie's got a big fucking body count. <laughs> yeah, Scarface racks it up pretty well, too. Oh, yeah. Cool. Um, so, yeah, he's in the couch. And I love that Charles Durning's character the entire time is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get that couch. Like, that's his whole thing. The whole movie is, I'm getting that couch. And you don't even see most of the journey. You just see him saying, I'm going to Canada to follow that couch. And then at the end... <laughs> Just him watching the couch. <laughs> He's just so dead set on like, I'm going to find that by on the couch. I love when you see him in that moment. He like takes his hard hat off to wipe his brow, visibly tired, and puts it back on and just resumes. And I'm like, dude, it's over. Like, <laughs> <laughs> She's in prison. Like she's going to prison for murder. I mean, at this point, it's, it's, it's just you. <laughs> like as far as the cops... You know, think with because of Grace's hypnotism, this murder never happened. Yeah, you don't you don't need to keep looking for the couch, buddy. I want to see a director's cut entirely from Charles Durning's perspective, where it's just him going through his day to day, and then he gets a call about some model who might have killed a black guy in her apartment, and then he just follows a couch to Quebec for the rest of the movie. I would watch that. Ain't that someone else? Why, why the couch? It's the main thing that's going to set this case off. It does After. seem like 
he just from the brief bit we get with Charles Durning, it doesn't seem like his career is in the place he imagined it would be. He seems bottom rung private eye, like the guy you can get for like 10 bucks and a Diet Coke. I mean, you know, just eh. so I think he needs this. Yeah. Well, what's funny too about that ending with the couch and him is that like it looks like he could easily just walk over there, look real quick, and call it in. No one's going to stop him because I think those are just strain people, like royal yard workers. Yeah. But instead, he's just like, I'm going to stare at it. Do you mind binoculars? I'm like, I'm pretty sure you just walk over there, and the guys who broke up the train station won't give a shit. Well, the whole point was like someone's going to be there in Quebec to to meet the movers and collect the couch, but that never happened. Possibly because, you know, Emil was stabbed to death. But, yeah, I think he's, I want, like, is he waiting till nightfall to make his move? And then what do you do? Like, you're in Canada now. Like, I don't think you legally crossed the border. <laughs> like, how do you, how do you handle this? <laughs> yeah, I want that movie. I want The Couch. I want that movie. Sisters to The Couch. Yes. <laughs> Oh boy. Uh, I'm not gonna work on that title because that does sound like a real creepy point on as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it kind of does. Maybe just the couch. Yeah. And actually I wish I could say creepy, but based off of people's search, apparently incest porn is big. I don't know why. It's that really creeps me out. Okay. Don't know how we got there, but all right, let's talk about this now. <laughs> Fine, if you don't want to talk about incest porn, okay. How did we go from fuck it, uh, <laughs> the couch? <laughs> um, what's, what's on the couch there, step bro? Oh my god, <laughs> uh, we could go lost world style with it. The couch sisters, too. Does that no, style of title bother you because it bothers me? Yeah, it does. I, I'm look. I'm a defender of that second movie because I know a lot of people hate Lost World, and I'm like, eh, it's not that bad. It's not Jurassic Park, but it's not that bad. Um, but I hate the title. That is the one thing I will not defend is that that fucking title is atrocious. Yeah, Damien, Omen Two, Hellbound, Hellraiser Two. I don't like that remake. Rest side story. Ugh. That that I don't care for for a whole bunch of other reasons and since well no i can't say that that spoils another show never mind but just there's gonna be a lot of west side story on my plate in december i'll just say that <laughs> mm, i'll say this much i was really on board when spielberg gave me ready player one and i was like yes spielberg i like his back he's not chasing the oscar constantly he's making those fun movies he's very known for and the next thing you know what's his next movie a remake of West Side Story, releasing clearly at a time that he's hoping to get people doing holidays and get that Oscar. Now, and I'm like, God damn it, Spielberg, what are you trying to prove? You're in your fucking 70s. I'm, I'm waiting for Ready Player Two. Where the hell is that? The book was fantastic. I want to see that movie. I'm just ready for Spielberg to start trying to chase something in his fucking 70s when he's an established goddamn director, an iconic director with a legacy, and just fucking keep making fun movies like Ready Player One. Just go back to making fun movies, Spielberg. I don't think he's trying to prove anything. I think that he's, you know, he's in that stage of his career where he could have retired years ago, but there's still something driving him. He still wants to make 
movies his way. So I think he wants to do a classic Hollywood movie his way. And West Side Story is what he picked, I guess. I really, I, I, this is one I hope that doesn't do well. And I hope he goes, well, okay, this one didn't do well. People like Ray Player One, I'll do that style. It's just, I, I have nothing against like when Spielberg chases Oscars because we do get movies like Saving Part Ryan and Schindler's List out of it. But at the same time, I'm like, you know, what I liked about him so much was that he was able to juggle both. He could make films like E.T., like Jaws, Indiana Jones. Like, you could make those films and then still do a Schindler's List and the Saving Part Ryan. He could do both. And it seems like in his later career, he's focused on the more serious Oscar-driven stuff and less on, like, the fun stuff that he is still, as Premier Player One, he's still really good at doing. That's true, but personally, I don't have a problem with that because I liked Bridge of Spies and I liked War Horse. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on board with Spielberg. I just didn't like West Side Story, the original one, and I don't think we need another one. Uh, or you like his Oscar stuff as well. Have you, actually, have you seen War Horse? No, because it looked boring as fuck to me. It's a brilliant movie about a horse and his adventures in World War One, and a boy sure. who... Fuck it, I'm not going to sell it to you. But it was like, a good movie. Really think about what you're trying to sell me. None of that sounded exciting to me. Did you see Bridge of Spies? No. It was written by the Coen brothers, first of all. Directed by Spielberg. And it's about Tom Hanks negotiating the return of an American downed uh, prisoner of war during the Cold War. It's a very tense movie. Sure. It's a very good movie. Step outside your comfort zone once in a while, man. I want fun Spielberg. It's just what I want. Well, Spielberg doesn't because his next movie is about him. Yeah, I know. I'm aware. It's Seth Rogen playing his fucking uncle. He's, his career is literally eating itself. So, yeah, whatever. Spielberg, you know, who are we to say anything about his career? He's maybe the like Austin recently called him the most important American filmmaker of all time. And hard to argue with that. High praise there, Austin. Yeah. Just look at his catalog. <laughs> Jaws, Indiana Jones, E.T. Like, it, it never stops. Um, so back to Sisters. I got really nervous when Grace broke into the mental hospital and the doctor immediately convinced everybody that she was in a patient trying to escape. Yeah, and that... Look, man, horror movies have taught me anything. It's like, don't go fucking sneaking into a goddamn mental institution. Like, first off, just don't do that. Like, movies shouldn't have taught you that. Okay, you should just know not to do that, especially in the fucking 70s. Um, so this is something I would not have done. As soon as I heard, oh, yeah, she's had a mental institution, be like, and my investigation is done. I like having liberty and freedom at my house. I will not go there. No, sir. Well, it was nuts how easy it was for the doctor to convince everybody. There was no pushback at all. Well, I think I got the feeling they were all in on it. Like they were all like really into what he was doing there. So it wasn't even a matter of like convincing. They were just like, yeah, whatever you say, doc. Well, what exactly was he doing there? Like beyond just, you know, separating the twins. What was his like? What was he doing? Uh, Fucking one of the other twins, apparently. Wanting to. I guess I, the ending got a little muddled for me. Uh, I still liked it, but 
yeah, the ending was a little hard to follow. The dream sequence when Grace becomes Dominique. At first, I was like, was she the other sister the whole time? I thought that for this for a second. Yeah, it got a little confusing. The dream logic really kind of was like, uh, okay. Kind of makes you have to watch it again and be like, uh. I think the greatest miracle is how the hell Dr. Emil cleaned the blood out of that carpet in like 10 minutes. That's true. Blood is not easy to get out of carpet. Not that I would know. I know that Comet ain't going to do the job. <laughs> That's all he had. Hey, you don't know that, man. Coke used to... The Coke drink used to have actual cocaine in it. Who knows what was in common back in the day? 70s and 80s were a lawless land. Coke was cocaine was in Coke in like the 1890s, not in the 70s. Pretty sure it was some Coke in the 70s. No, Coke was just there in the 70s. Coke was in the disco studios. That's where it was. You clearly don't know what you're talking about. History major. <laughs> don't. Don't fuck with my history credentials. I will come down on you like scorched earth, motherfucker. I swear to God. Do it. Do it. Later. I don't have time. I got to talk about sisters. I want to see you do it. Cocaine used to be in Coke in like the 1800s. And amazingly, it, it got rid of all your ailments. Because all of a sudden, you were no longer thinking about how sick you were. You were just enjoying the ride. That's it's, the question. Like, when people were like, you know, this drug's okay. It used to be in this kind of mess. And I was like, yeah, but you you know why. It never really solved anything. It just made people feel so good. They weren't thinking about the fucking pain they were in. Yeah. Meth used to be prescribed medicine for people who were, like, experiencing the humors. And they would give them amphetamines. And suddenly... They weren't sick anymore. <laughs> it was the cure for what ails you. They just thought they had bugs crawling through their skin. Yep. There were a whole new set of problems, but we don't talk about that. <laughs> like, yeah, your headache's gone, but you can see through walls now and the dragons are coming. <laughs> don't catch the dragon, whatever you do. <laughs> God, that's fucking crazy to me. That once upon a time, we were just prescribing super hard drugs. For the smallest shit. It was can you imagine if we still did that? You went to the doctor for a migraine and he prescribed you like a he wrote you a prescription for like three refills of fucking meth. You're having a stressful day at work. Here's some PCP, buddy. Just go down to your local drugstore. You're at the office and you're just like, oh, I can't get rid of this headache. And you just pull out. A fucking spoon, a lighter, and a and a and a needle, and just start start cooking right there. The guy next to you just takes some Tylenol, man. I need my medicine. <laughs> or the other guy is just like one of those days, huh, Phil? <laughs> just... <laughs> Me too. He's ready to shoot up some heroin. Yeah, he just like pulls out, you know, a, a rolled up dollar bill and a mirror and just starts just snoop, just doing lines right there. It's like, I got a prescription. It's okay. I would love to live in that ward because it'd be so fun. All drugs are legalized as long as you have a prescription. 
that would be you know what i want to live in that world too the south park episode and that would be so worth it if it was anything like the legalized marijuana episode worth it i think the funniest thing would be a complete change in like the people you interact with the tv shows you watch like suddenly everybody's energy skyrockets like 500 percent because now they can do whatever they want with zero consequences oh that's fine i don't remember how we got here but that was fun. Um, right here. <laughs> so, sisters, um, the ending is fucking bleak because Emil hypnotizes Grace to convince her that there never was a murder, that she made it up. And at first, you kind of forget about that when Danielle snaps again and stabs Emil, like with the with the scalpel in the in the femoral. Yeah, there's. There's like, look, like this ending is like, I've said from some but this is like, it's just an assault on your senses. Cause there's that, this weird dreamo where like they're ceremoniously handing him a knife to do the operation to split them apart. There's like, you know, them in the bed together and like her and Mario Kato and the doctor have a fight, which looks like she cut his balls. And then like they embrace and blood and die on top of Jennifer Salt's character. Like, so there's a lot going on that I remember watching just going, wow, okay, there's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> yeah, and then when the cop, inve- you know, is apologizing to Grace and is like, hey, I'm sorry we didn't believe you, you know, she's like, well, there was no murder. And then, like, I had forgotten, and I'm like, oh, shit, that's right, he hypnotized her. And the cop's like, what do you want me to do? I said, I'm sorry. Like, he thinks she's fucking with him. <laughs> that made me laugh. Like this, this asshole. <laughs> he finally believes our nice. Like, God damn it! He gets super pissed really fast. <laughs> it's like, what do you want me to do? Get on my knees and beg? I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm NYPD. He should have like given her like a box of donuts, so and he just like grab it out of her hand and start eating it in front of her in anger. <laughs> just embrace all the stereotypes. Yeah. <sighs> I want to write a cop movie where the cop has like a half-eaten crawler in his hands at all times. He never takes a bite of it, but he's always ha- he always has it. That would be funny. Anyway, yeah, Grace just keeps saying like, "I don't know what to tell you. There wasn't a murder. It never happened." And he's like, "Well, then I can't do anything." And I'm like, "Yeah, it sucks, but also like nobody's getting away with anything. Like Danielle's going to prison for killing the doctor. Like it all worked out." Yeah. Killing him by making him bleed out his balls, it looked like. Because, dear Lord. I I think she stabbed him in, in the leg. I think she, she she nicked the femoral artery. I don't think she got him in the balls. It looked like the balls. I was getting a little weird. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I was like, this man may be a monster, but does he deserve that kind of death? I don't know. Um, But, uh, yeah, it... I actually forgot about the hypnotizing thing. At first, I thought when I was watching it, I was like, my first I was like, God damn, she must be broken. Because, you know, she wakes up and starts screaming, very obviously, because there's now a dead man on top of this lady who is <laughs> embracing him in blood. It's like, I'd be screaming too. That's a weird, that's not something you should wake up to. So not thought, usually, no. No. So I thought at first her mind was just like broken, which would not have surprised me. But then I was like, when I was thinking, about it, I was like, I was like, oh wait, shit, that's right. He hypnotized her. He literally took away all her memories. Holy shit. 
One thing we didn't really talk about, which I thought was such an odd way to introduce these characters, was the opening on the uh, like Peeping Tom game show. Uh, so weird to have, first off, the idea of her pretending to be blind, going into a man, men's locker room and undressing, and Philip clearly not intending to say anything, <laughs> just standing there watching. And then for him, like, then for them to go out, like that's how they met. That's such an odd situation. It, yeah, it's odd, but it's almost like to me, like that really sets the tone for the movie you're getting. And I want, and I kind of want to watch it again, see like how much the point in that scene that probably like kind of explains some of the movie to you, and just that opening scene alone. Maybe. Um, well, here are some film guys and facts. There's not a lot of trivia about this movie, but I do have two. Number one, during an interview, Jennifer Salt was questioned about the meaning of the film's strange open-ended conclusion. She admitted that she did not understand the meaning of the film's ending either. Like she had nothing. She was like, I don't know. I was just in it. I don't know. Uh, yeah. What do you want from me? I was just in the movie. Okay. <laughs> Number two. De Palma was forever stereotyped as a Hitchcock copycat throughout his career. And that reputation started with this movie, which borrows uh, liberally from Psycho, Rope, and Rear Window. I didn't even think about Rear Window, but yeah. <laughs> I didn't even bring that. I didn't even come into my head, but totally. Um, it's interesting to note that this is his first thriller. And up until this point, he was thought of as a hippie satirist in Hollywood having directed three baby boomer post-60s style comedies up until this point. Hi, Mom, Greetings, and Get to Know Your Rabbit. <laughs> De Palma would stay mostly in the realm of thriller and action-adventure for most of his career after this, rarely returning to his comedic roots ever again. And yeah, I didn't know he started as a shitty comedy director. Me neither. That's, I, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad, you know, I, I don't, I wouldn't call him a Hitchcock copycat. You know, I think he is, he's borrowing from the greats and there's no, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, Sisters is very much its, its own thing with, you know, clear influences. So. No, I, I agree. I wouldn't call him a copycat. I, I think he just, he takes his influences and rose them on his sleeve and has zero issues putting them out for displaying his movies. I, he very much as, as far as I'm concerned, so has his own style. Like I said, Hitchcock, to my knowledge, never did split screenshots. I, I don't want to confirm that because I haven't seen enough of Hitchcock to, to verify that's that. That's why I said to my knowledge. Yeah. Um, but there's stuff that he does that I don't recall Hitchcock doing or whoever else he's influenced by doing. Like, okay, he had his influences. does not make him a copycat. He still had his own style. You can still very much tell when it's a De Palma movie. Like I said, he became very well known for these, like, erotic uh, thrillers that were coming out and Hitchcock didn't exactly dabble in erotic thrillers he did get try to get away with what he could but he wasn't like known for doing that so yeah. I, I think that's an unfair thing to do and to say and just, to me it just shows your severe lack of film and understanding of these directors it reads to me as yet another attempt to badmouth a horror film just Anything, any horror movie that has like a bit of success or critical acclaim, 
everyone's trying always trying to poke holes in it. It's, it's fucking weird. Yep. I mean, look at the Oscars. Silence of the Lambs got it, but got best picture yet. What they call it? Suspense, because they just could not bear to call it what it actually is. Yeah. Sisters is you know thrown into the Criterion Collection. It's considered a a win for De Palma, a groundbreaking erotic thriller. And what do people say? Oh, he just ripped off Hitchcock. Something special. Yeah, this is the age-old argument we're going to be having forever. So the film was remade in 2006 under the same name by Douglas Buck, who didn't really do anything else of note. The remake stars Chloe Sevigny, Stephen Ray, William B. Davis, Dallas Roberts, and Lou Dolion. It was horribly received, sports a 12% Rotten Tomatoes audience score, doesn't even have a critic score. Uh, so Sisters 2006, probably one to avoid. <coughs> yeah, I didn't even know it got remade. Yeah, neither did I. That's why we, why we do this. <laughs> so you guys can know and make that judgment for yourself, but based off what I'm hearing, it's not a good movie. Yeah, sounds like prime real estate for something else, though. Um, beyond this one. Yeah. I give Sisters an eight. It's intriguing, original, and unpredictable. Also very well acted. Yeah, I, I agree. I give it an eight. Really, uh, if you want to see like the Palma style outside of his very extremely well-known films, and what he was doing with that and you know, mixing the erotic with the horror and bringing in the actors that he did and the performances that we get and just a what-the-fuck ending. Absolutely. Check this one out. Oh, yeah. It's on HBO Max right now. Uh, I'm so glad they partnered with Criterion to upload most of that channel's uh, collection, which is great. So that's where you can check out Sisters for the foreseeable future. Uh, Thanks for listening, everybody. As always, if you like what we do, feel free to follow us on the socials, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Filmgasm Productions. If you want to suggest films, give us feedback, you can email us at filmgasm at gmail.com or always send a message through the socials. If you want to support the show with Anchor, you can click on support this podcast on your preferred podcast provider. All donations are appreciated, but not necessary. We hope you enjoyed the show. Next week is very special. Due to the long-awaited release of Ghostbusters Afterlife next Friday, there really was no other film to talk about. When three scientist friends prove the existence of ghosts in New York City, they start a ghost removal company that quickly becomes the toast of New York until an ancient Sumerian god attempts to cross over on Central Park West, and the only people standing in its way are the Ghostbusters. Tune in next week to hear us dig into the 1984 comedy classic, one of my all-time favorite movies, been trying to do Ghostbusters for years. Was waiting for Afterlife to do it. Here it is. Yeah, it's going to be exciting. It's going to be exciting to finally talk about Ghostbusters, which is just a great movie, but also the fact that we're finally getting Afterlife, which is, you know, as we're finally doing the end of films that have been delayed due to the pandemic, this was one, of the, I think, like this and the Batman were like ones that just got really got pushed. So it's good finally getting to then, like, it's weird. It's almost like signifying that we're finally getting to a point where we're like catching back up on movies that should have come out last year. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And this also just looks like a joy. I'm so glad that Jason Reitman is the guy behind it. You know, Ivan Reitman, his father did the first two films and 
it's just it's a it feels like a good passing of the torch in more ways than one. And from what I hear, it's getting really good reviews. So Ghostbusters next week. Also, don't miss whatever happened to Baby Jane on Oscar Sunday and whatever we got going on on Monday's sneak preview. Red Notice, Belfast, and Home Sweet Home Alone all come out on Friday, but we're not we're not sold. We're not really feeling it. So we're probably going to do something else. Find out on Monday. Well, I'm not feeling three of them. I know you're feeling Belfast, but I'm not feeling any of those movies. I would love to do a full thing on Irish culture and the Troubles and Kenneth Branagh, but I know you could give a fuck, so we won't. <laughs> but that's okay. You know, when fucking Rob Zombie's next movie comes out, I probably won't want to give a fuck, and we might do something else then. You tell me you don't give a shit about the monsters. It was an it was a hypothetical. How dare you just say that? Honestly, I don't really care that much about the monsters, so probably. Oh my god. Um. Well, so, put on the monsters. Got it. <laughs> until then, don't go out with a woman you met on a hidden camera show that tried to trick you into being a perv on live television. That seems like good advice. And also keep watching movies.